We're going to go ahead and, and get started with our Sunday school hour um, as we continue our um, survey through the books of the Old Testament. Um, but before we do begin, I'd like to go ahead and, and pray and ask for the Lord's uh, blessing on our, on our study time this morning. Heavenly Father, um, we come before you this morning, and our hearts are eager to, um, to learn from you, to receive wisdom and instruction from your word. And uh, we're excited, Lord, because um, you have promised um, that your word will not return to you void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it out. Um, so, Lord, we, we um, plead with you for um, the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning, um, that he might um, wield um, your word and your teaching in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Job. The book of Job belongs to a biblical genre that we refer to as um, the wisdom literature. This includes Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Um, and because the book does not state an author, um, scholars and, and biblical historians have been unclear as to who did write the book of Job. Um, some have suggested, and some, um, some traditions have suggested Moses, um, as he spent a lot of time in the land of Midian, which is adjacent to the land of Uz, where Job lived. So he could have picked up this story from there. Others have suggested Solomon to be the author, um, given the fact that he wrote many of the other uh, wisdom books, and Job, in a lot of places, um, sounds quite a bit like um, Ecclesiastes in its themes, um, but we cannot really know for sure um, who authored the book of Job. What we do know is that the book deals with some of the most difficult and weighty questions that we face in life, what C.S. Lewis called the problem of pain. The question is, why do God's people suffer pain and loss? So who was Job? What do we know about him? The New Testament references Job multiple times. We know um, that he was a real person, a historical figure. And scholars believe that he lived sometime after the Tower of Babel and before Abraham or contemporaneously with Abraham. So the time of the patriarchs. Um, the author also gives us enough information that we can piece together sort of a biographical sketch of the man Job. We know that he was middle-aged, that he was a spiritually mature man, the father of ten children, seven sons and three daughters. He was extremely wealthy and influential in his time, evidenced by the fact that he owned many flocks and herds. He was a priest before God for his family. He was a loving and wise husband 
He was a man of prominence in community affairs. He was a giving and benevolent person. Verse 3 of Job chapter 1 makes this kind of remarkable statement. It says that he was the greatest of all the people of the East. In his city, Job was kind of like John MacArthur meets John D. Rockefeller. (laughs) I think it's really important for us to dwell on this perception of Job and this elevated status that he had before we can really appreciate how far he had to fall before he hit rock bottom. So beginning in verse 6, we are let into um, this opening scene in God's throne room. So let's read there. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So we see God takes up this challenge. He enters this battle with Satan for his glory, for Job's faith. And he authorizes Satan to attack all that Job has. I want to point out two things that we should notice here. First of all, we see the ultimate sovereignty of God being upheld in this narrative. Satan can only act within the confines of what God's sovereignty allows. That is not to say that Satan wittingly or willingly does God's will. He opposes God's will. But all of his best laid schemes ultimately will play into and accomplish God's sovereign purposes. It is important for us to note that behind Job's trials and sufferings, there are two opposing intentions, that of God and that of Satan. Satan's intention, Satan's purpose in Job's suffering is to tempt him to sin and to renounce his faith, while God's ultimate purpose is to refine and to try Job's faith and thereby receive glory. The same thing is true in the trials that we face. Whatever difficulty or suffering God allows in our lives, we can be certain that while Satan intends it for evil, God intends it for good, and his purpose will be accomplished. So we read in the verses that follow how that day, Job gets a lot of bad news. He receives word by a messenger that bandits have come and stolen his oxen and donkeys and killed his servants watching over them. And while that first messenger is still talking, another one arrives and tells him how fire from heaven has fallen and destroyed all of his flocks. And while that person is still talking, another man comes and tells him how the Chaldeans, this nomadic tribe, have come and they have 
attacked his servants who were watching over his camels and killed them and stole the camels. And while that man is still speaking, another one comes with the worst news of all and tells Job that while his seven sons and three daughters were all celebrating together in his oldest son's house, a great wind had come up and knocked over the house and killed all of his children. Let's look at verse 20 and see Job's response. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job's faith holds. and He worships the Lord in circumstances that most of us cannot possibly imagine. But Satan continues his assault. In chapter 2, we read, let's, let's start in verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan attacks Job, strikes him with this loathsome disease. We're told that he um, breaks out in these open sores from the bottom of his foot to the top of his head. And as you can imagine, in a time... Now, this would be a terrible thing to experience in today's world with all of the modern medicine that we benefit from. But for Job, in that time, this was devastating. We're told that he, the only remedy that he has is to take a broken potsherd and to break open the, the sores and to release some of the um, infection, to scrape off the, um, the worms uh, that are are developing in these open wounds. The pain must have been excruciating. So we see in verse 9 of <clears throat> chapter 2, the response of Job's wife to this situation. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. This is truly heartbreaking. Job's wife breaks. Married couples in the room who have gone through difficult trials together can appreciate how a husband and wife often will draw strength from one another and rely on each other in difficult times. But Job's wife had had enough. Curse God and die. The facade of her faith has shattered, and now Job is truly alone, unsupported and in agony. In verse 11, however, it appears that reinforcements have arrived, sort of. In uh, verse 
11, we read, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. I think we have a tendency to be kind of hard on on Job's friends. And certainly they did get a lot very, very wrong. But I had to ask myself, when was the last time I sat with someone who was in pain and hurting for seven minutes, let alone seven days and seven nights? I think we can take from that that their intention was um, to help Job, to be there for him. However, pride and um, poor theology will get in the way of their best intentions. So in chapter 3, Job finally says something. Let's look at chapter 3 and verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived. Look at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. Skip down to verse 25. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. At this point, I believe Job has hit rock bottom. These are the words of deep despair. I wish I'd never been born. The pain of living is now too great. I wish I was dead. Upon hearing these alarming words from their friend Job, these men do what I think many of us would do. They shift into crisis management mode. They're going to fix Job. So this is no longer a condolence call, but an intervention that is about to go horribly wrong. Eliphaz speaks first, and he kicks off the first cycle of three, three cycles of de- debate that will follow, where each of Job's friends will speak and give him their arguments and how they see the situation, and Job will respond. So in chapter 4, it says, Eliphaz the Timonite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? He's hesitating a little. He should have kept silent. Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees, But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. What he's saying here basically is, Job, it's time for you to practice what you've been preaching. So maybe a little harsh, but not that bad. Just wait. In verse 7, he says, Remember 
Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Now we get to it. The not-so-subtle implication is that Job must be guilty of something. You see, these men's worldview, their theology, did not allow for such a thing as innocent suffering. You do things that please God, that equals blessing. You do, do things that displease God, that equals suffering in their mind. And this overly simplistic theology is about to make a bad situation much, much worse. He's saying, Job, you suffer because you're in sin. Repent and you will be restored. Now we know that this is not the case because God himself earlier has already um, affirmed Job's integrity. So in chapter 6, Job responds to his friend, and he says, my complaint is just. And in verse 14, it's his turn to make some accusations. He says, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. He says, Eliphaz, you're the one in the wrong here. Later on, he, he says, look me in the eye and tell me I'm unrighteous. You tell me what I am guilty of. So in chapter 7, Job continues his response, and he expresses the true depth of his hopelessness at this time. Let's look at chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens and then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. In verse 11, he says, Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. In verse 12, Job actually stops talking to his friends and addresses himself directly to God. Can you imagine these words? Can you see him looking up at heaven as he says these things to God? Am I a monster that you set a guard over me? Not even my sleep gives me comfort. Nightmares terrify me. Leave me alone. Just let me die. Job is tired. He's in a dangerous place. And his friends aren't helping. Chapter 8. So now Bildad is up to bat. Only he's not as tactful as Eliphaz. In verse, let's see, two through four, he says, How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? Now get this. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. What's he saying here? Your kids are dead because they deserve it, Job. Unbelievable. Unbelievable the lack of compassion and empathy coming from these guys because of their pride, because of their hypocrisy. So Job responds in chapter 9. This is where Job first expresses his wish to plead his case before God. Chapter 9, verse 17. Let's read there. He says, For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness 
If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. And when disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked, and he covers the faces of its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? I think in this passage, specifically, we see just how bad things have gotten for Job. He has not relented of his faith in God. But in his agony, in his need to know why, he's become tired and frustrated. He feels that all of this is unfair. He wants to understand, and so he begins to analyze and rationalize the nature and purposes of God. This is a very dangerous place for us to be. And I think that we have all, at one time or another, found ourselves here. When the trial and the pain have gone on longer than we can understand, we start to think that we deserve to know why. And that desire to make sense of it all can lead us to try and figure, figure out God and what he's doing. And in that, we are doomed to fail. God is the one who gives us the very ability to reason. And it is supreme folly and arrogance on our part to think that his motives need to fit into our minds. This fretful analysis of the situation leads to wrong beliefs and wrong thoughts towards God. It did for Job. And while he does not accuse God of doing evil, he does suggest arbitrariness and unfairness. These are serious charges that Job is leveling here and ones that God will eventually deal with. So in chapter 11, now it's Zophar's turn. And these guys are starting to sound like a broken record. He says, Job, know then that God exacts less of you than your guilt deserves. Job, I think you deserve worse than this. You are so guilty. I think it's interesting that up until this point, nobody has said what it is he is guilty of, only that he must be guilty. Very, very guilty. And in chapter 12, Job responds. So look at chapter 12 and note the sarcasm. No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? He says, guys, you're not telling me anything I don't already know. Who doesn't know this stuff? I understand God. I know what you know. Again, he implicitly accuses God of unfairness in verse 6. He says, the tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure. However, in chapter 12, verse 13, through 13 and verse 3, we see Job kind of coming back from the brink. He reaffirms his faith in the power and wisdom of God. And actually, throughout this discourse, throughout everything that Job is saying here, you can kind of see that he, 
he sort of swings back and forth between this complaining and questioning. And then his theology will kick in and bring him back and he reaffirms his trust, reaffirms what he believes to be true about God. And perhaps we can relate. When trials endure and we grow tired, the flesh can become weak. And that is when our knowledge of God and our theology is absolutely critical. So let's look at chapter 13. Job restates more emphatically that he wants his day in court with God. He then turns on his companions and he accuses them of hypocrisy. Basically says that they are seeking to garner favor with God by defending and rationalizing his actions even if they have to lie to do it. And then in verse 15 he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. We see in that verse at once both Job's faith and his frustration. So Job continues to plead with God for this hearing. He desperately wants vindication. He desperately wants an explanation. Chapter 15 begins the second cycle of these three cycles of the debate, where each of Job's friends will present their arguments, Job responds, only now Job's friends, their egos have been wounded and become increasingly accusatory and hostile towards Job. And he sinks deeper and deeper into despair. So for the sake of time, we're not going to go deeply into these remaining two uh, debate cycles. Um, But basically what we see is each of Job's friends um, becoming more and more accusatory. Eliphaz, actually, in this, um, in the third cycle, let's see. Find my place here. Chapter 22. Skip ahead a bit. Now remember this guy, Eliphaz, he's the first one to speak, um, trying to, to help Job, trying to comfort him. But now his, his mood has completely changed. Let's look at verse 3 through 7. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. This is remarkable. The same guy who initially said, Job, you have strengthened the hands of the weak. Job, you have helped others. We see that. Is now accusing Job of great evil. And not only that, he begins to lay out this long list of false accusations that we don't have the time to go into. But it's remarkable how this whole situation has devolved, spinning out of control. So Job responds in chapter 23. Let's look at 23, verses 3 through 7. Job says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, 
that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. Job, more than ever, wants his day in court with God. He's so convinced that he could make his case. So in chapter 24, we see Job again decrying the evil and injustice that takes place in the world and God's apparent inaction. In chapter 25, Bildad responds. And he says, man cannot be right before God. And Job responds and says, uh, in chapter 26, basically what Job does is to show that he can describe God's greatness and God's attributes more capably than any of these men. Um, As if to say to them, guys, I know all of this. I know these things are true about God just as you do, but nothing you are saying is helping me. So in chapter 27 through 31, we see Job's closing argument, his final defense of himself against these accusations. He says, as long as there is breath in me, I will maintain my integrity. You guys are wrong. So after this, Elihu, Bildad, and Zophar, these three friends, have nothing more to say. They've said all they can, they've done all the damage they can do, and they fall silent. And at this point, things take an interesting turn, because while Job's three friends have been talking their heads off and things have spiraled out of control, a fourth man named Elihu, who apparently began listening in on this discussion at some point, not called one of Job's friends, and much younger than the, than the three who've been talking up to this point, he can no longer keep silent. And so he joins in the discussion. And certainly, some of what he says is flawed. We see him make some pretty shockingly proud statements. He even seems to mischaracterize some of what Job has said, and he puts words in Job's mouth. But what he does do is he draws the focus away from Job and his suffering onto God and his character. I find it interesting that Job apparently really starts to listen. Until now, he has not allowed his accusers to speak very long before he responds and rebuts. But this guy, Elihu, he allows to carry on for six whole chapters as he expounds the glory and the majesty of God. Job is listening. He has Job's attention. In chapter 34, Elihu upholds the justice of God. In chapter 36, he extols the greatness of God. Let's look there, Job 36. Verses 24 through 33. Remember to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable, for he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in the rain. And then, 
let's see, in chapter 36 and verse, let's go back to 15. And read there. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. At this point, Elihu says something that goes beyond anything that anybody else has said to this point and getting near the truth that Job needs to hear. He says that God uses adversity and suffering to open men's ears and to draw them to himself. In chapter 37, Elihu proclaims God's majesty. Let's look at 37, verse 14. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. This sermon has gotten Job's attention, but not as much as what is about to happen. At this point, we read how out of nowhere, a whirlwind kicks up, and a voice like thunder speaks out of the whirlwind. Job is going to get what he's been asking for. He will have his day in court with God, only God will be the one doing the questioning. Let's look at chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I think it's interesting to notice that in chapter 38, verse 1, where God introduces himself to Job, the word used is Yahweh. This is God's covenant name, and it has not been used prior to this point throughout all of the discourse. Whenever Job or his friends referred to God before this moment, they used the name El Shaddai, or God the Almighty. And the author very purposefully used this title, I believe, in order to illustrate a sort of distance and detachment. But here, when God introduces himself to Job out of the whirlwind and uses his covenant name, Yahweh, it signifies the restoration of relationship that he intends with Job. God has not come to punish or to crush Job, but to graciously and mercifully correct him. He is about to be Job's vindicator, but there are a few things he needs to deal with first. So verse 1 through 4 of 38 Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So throughout this first of God's responses to Job, He presents before Job as his evidence, Exhibit A, the universe. His wisdom and power on full display in his creation and sustaining of the earth, the stars, the sun, the oceans, the snow, the rain, the thunder and lightning. All of these things display for Job God's wisdom and power. 
Now let's look at verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in the thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Now God presents exhibit B, the animal kingdom and all that it contains. Men have spent thousands of lifetimes and spilled oceans of ink studying and documenting the various ecosystems of this earth and how they interconnect. And we still only scratch the surface of all of those things. And God says, Job, I did that. I want us to notice this. Creation is where God went to decisively demonstrate his power and wisdom to Job. And this should be instructive for us today. God's wisdom and his power and majesty are on full display in his creation. And recognition of his design is the foundation of faith. And we live in a day where Christians tend to downplay the importance of affirming this truth. That God created the world in exactly the way his word says. It is a feeble faith that is willing to accept man's opinions and assertions in place of what God says about how he created the world. God says to Job in chapter 38 and 39, Job, did you teach the lion to hunt for its prey? Do you provide for the ravens? Do you cause the mountain goats to calve and give birth? Did you loose the wild donkey and give him the desert plain for his home? Oh no, wait, that was me. I did that. What about the wild ox, Job? Can you hitch him up to a plow and make him do your work for you? So in chapter 39, verses 19, let's see. No, chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. After this first response to Job, God says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God... Let him answer it. Job responds, verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Job says, I give up. I'm, I'm done. And yet God says, we're not done here yet. In verses 6 through 8, well, 6 six through the end of the chapter, God presents Exhibit C, his mightiest creatures. Let's look at verse 15. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar, The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze and his limbs like bars of iron. Now, I find it really interesting and a bit frustrating that a lot of people will look at this and say, he must be talking about a hippopotamus here. Have you ever seen a hippopotamus tail? I mean, that doesn't fit the description. What animal, what creature can we think of whose tail could be described as a cedar tree? 
the dinosaur, okay? It's not, you know, rocket science. It's actually fairly obvious. Um, and really, the only logical reason that people would deny that God is referencing a, a member of the dinosaur species here is because they don't want to offend the sensibilities of evolutionary theory. Now, if this is something that you perhaps struggle with, um, I'm not going to try to convince you, but I would encourage you uh, sometime today, go Google, um, um, let's see. Yeah, here we go. Dinosaur soft tissue findings. Not once, but multiple times within the past few years, scientists have uncovered in dinosaur specimens soft tissue like bone marrow and red blood cells. And it's almost laughable because they look at this evidence and say, wow, that is remarkably preserved for 75 million years old. And professing themselves to be wise, they become fools because they force the evidence to fit the narrative. Let us not fall into that trap. There is every reason to believe that God is pointing Job to, in both Behemoth and Leviathan, some member of the dinosaur species. And there are plenty of creation scientists who will back me up on that. Now also notice that in verse 15, God does not say, consider or imagine behemoth. But he says, behold, behemoth. I personally believe that God in his power has summoned this creature to a place near enough for Job and his companions to observe and marvel at. Can you imagine if Job is standing there staring up at a brachiosaurus and God says, Job, are you going to put a ring in his nose and lead him around? In chapter 41, God speaks of Leviathan. I believe that he's referring to um, some oceanic member of the dinosaur species. Recently, the largest fossil of an ichthyosaur found to date was of a creature that would have been 69 feet long and 150,000 pounds. And God says, Job, are you going to catch him on a hook? Are you going to put him on a leash for kids to play with? The obvious answer is no. And the implication is, Job, if you can't stand up to these creatures that I made and that do my bidding, what makes you think that you can contend with me? In chapter 42... Let's look at Job's confession, starting in verse 2. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye Seize you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. We've run out of time, but we see uh, in the verses that follow God's merciful forgiveness towards Job as he reinstates Job's priestly role on behalf of his friends, whom God is not pleased with. And then in verses 10 through 17, we see Job's restoration. Let's look quickly at those. 
And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. This is verse 10 of chapter 42. When he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. And ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. As far as we know, Job was never told the reasons behind his suffering. He didn't have all the answers that we saw in chapter 1. And the same thing is often true for us when we face devastating loss or pain or circumstances that we may not understand. But the message of this book is that, like Job, we don't have to understand. What we need is a big view of God and his sovereignty, that our hearts may cling to that truth and know who he is, who he has revealed himself to be in creation, in his word. There was meaning and value and purpose in Job's suffering. And there can be meaning and value and purpose in yours and mine as well when we place our trust in the good purposes of our sovereign God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant Job and the, the testimony of his life and what you showed to him. Thank you for preserving this for us that in similar circumstances we might learn the same lessons that he learned. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.